0: a a series where we started last week talking about the book of Leviticus which is one of the hardest books of the Bible and the reason I wanted to do it was um, there's no other book really that that anyone points to, especially today to kind of discount the Bible than talking about Leviticus Uh, Leviticus is full of a lot of crazy things and we're going to take just a couple of weeks um, through the end of the semester to talk about some of those crazy things and try to make sense of them and how they relate to us as Christians and how they relate to Jesus and tonight we're going to take a look at the food laws which should be fun. Um, so I'll read. I'm, we're looking at Leviticus 11, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read the beginning of it and the end of it, and, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll kind of just dive into thinking about when the world did the food laws. What does it mean for them? What does it mean for us? Um, let me read the passage for us first. Leviticus 11, um, verses one, one and two. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying to them, speak to the people of Israel, saying, these are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. And then he lays it all out. And then skipping down to verse 45, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. you shall therefore be holy for I am holy. this is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms in the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean <clears throat> and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. <laughs> Let me pray for us, then we're going to get into kind of a weird, a weird topic tonight, but I hope it's going to make a lot of sense to you. Let's pray first. Uh, Jesus, we, do, we, we thank you um, for Leviticus. We thank you that um, there's not a single um, book in your word that has nothing for us. We thank you, Lord, that your word is <clears throat> living and active. Um, we, we can't know ourselves apart from your word. We can't know you, Lord Jesus, apart from your word, especially especially the Old Testament. And Lord, I pray that as we look at this hard book and we look at a weird uh, passage tonight, that you would be meeting us in our questions. You would be meeting us in our doubts. We thank you that you are a God who um, who meets People like doubting Thomas. Um, people like us, with our questions, with our struggles, um, with our skepticism, and with our doubts. Would you be gracious uh, tonight and 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 onward to continue to wrestle with us in those ways? And we thank you for your grace to us in that way. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, big picture, we're talking about food tonight, and there's no one that gets food better and writes about food better, and and talks about food better than Jim Gaffigan. Um, A few years ago, we went to see Jim Gaffigan do stand-up. We took our um, servant team to Asheville, and he happened to be doing a show in Asheville, and so we went to see him. And he did, it was Mr. Universe was to tour, so he had this great bit on McDonald's. One of the lines I'll never forget is he said, your mom's never made anything as good as McDonald's fries, (laughs) which is just so true. Um, But here's what he says about McDonald's. It's a famous bit. He said this, I'm tired of people acting like they're better than McDonald's, it's like you may never have. Uh, it's like you may never have set foot in McDonald's, but you have your own McDonald's. Maybe instead of buying a Big Mac, you read Us Weekly. Hey, that's still McDonald's. It's just served up a little different. Maybe your McDonald's is telling yourself that a Starbucks Frappuccino is not a milkshake, or maybe you watch Glee. It's all McDonald's. McDonald's of the soul. Momentary pleasure followed by incredible guilt, eventually leading to cancer. I'm loving it. Um, but I think as we kind of get in. To this idea of why did the Lord had these strange food laws for his people? And there are kind of a couple of things I want to say at the outset before we get into the weirdness of, of what the Lord laid out for his people. The first I want to say is gaffing us as this idea that our relationship with food, can we just own, that our relationship with food is complicated. Um, everything from uh, the food industry, if you ever watched something like Food, Inc., which um, I have and it kind of undoes you. To diet fads, to the way you do your own, food choices, fast food. We we live in a complicated time. It's 2017, we would say we've made a lot of progress in a lot of ways, but when it comes to food, our relationship with food is still complicated. I was just, uh, yesterday I went with some friends to Good Life Cafe, I don't know if you've ever been, it's a raw vegan place downtown right across from the Nick, and it's actually pretty delicious. I'm not a vegan, and props if you are, my wife's kind of into that. But I went and I got these vegan tacos that are not anything like tacos, but they're actually pretty amazing. And so, but we took one friend who'd never been before, and he was saying, he was like, I've been actually to Good Life Cafe a couple times, but I've never ordered food, number one, because it's so crazy expensive, and number two, it just looks terrible, and I don't want to pay $20 for something that I know, like a kale salad that I'm not going to like, and then i convinced convince him to get the tacos, and I still don't think he was sold. But he was voicing something. He was saying, our relationship with food is complicated. Um, Everything from what we should be eating, what we shouldn't be eating, to what we spend on food, to what we don't spend on food. But then the second thing I want to convince you of is we kind of think about it. On the the flip side, our relationship with food is crucial. Everything from what we put into our bodies, um, everything to how we spend our money, um, everything to how we support or or, um, further bad, uh, greedy food regulations – Um, This is where, you know, I was thinking about it like this. When my wife and I, we're pretty different. I'm a pragmatist when it comes to food. I am not a snob at all, and I I will eat. I'm a fast food lover. And when I go grocery shopping, we have radically different ideas. I want to spend as little money as possible at Kroger to provide as much healthy processed food for my family as I can within reason. She wants to spend an, an incredible amount of money at Whole Foods. So much that we won't be able to afford our kids to like do anything with their lives afterwards because we've shopped at Whole Foods. Because she wants grass-fed beef and she wants things that are healthier for our kids. Um, and part of what she's saying, part of what I'm saying, is how we spend money on our food matters. And part of what she's saying is what we put into our bodies and how how these animals are treated matters. We can't get around this idea that our relationship with food, as as people made in God's image, is crucial. And when we go to look at the the food laws, here's what I want us to keep in mind. This is why I'm saying this. We've got to beware, and this is not just true of tonight, this is true of all of Leviticus. We've got to beware of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, where we look back on past people in past times and judge them because what they're doing seems weird. Can we just admit it's 2017 and the way that we do food still matters and it's still hard and it's still sometimes weird and we as Christians, it matters. This is where I don't know if you've ever watched The Wire or not, but my favorite character, Omar, he's got this great line where he's talking about the difference between, you know, how you live on the streets and how you live not on the streets. And he has this famous line from The Wire where he just says a man's got to have a code. There's actually this incredible cross-stitch on Etsy. It's just like a shotgun with that cross-stitch on it. Um, that's what I want for my next birthday. But a man has to have a code. And can we just admit as Christians, sometimes when it comes to food, we don't know what the code should be. So why don't we look at Leviticus and make some sense of what the code used to be for God's people. So what I want to do tonight is just three simple things. I want to talk about first the explanation of the food laws, just what were they? I want to talk second about the motivation of the food laws, like why did God give them? What was the purpose? And then lastly, I want to talk about the application for us. So the the explanation, the motivation, and then the application for us. So first, let's talk about the the explanation. Um, Here's the first thing you've got to understand if you're ever going to understand Leviticus, and especially what we're talking about tonight. You have to understand that what God calls clean and unclean, we've got to get it out of the category of, of righteousness and wickedness. That's not what it means. We're talking ritually and ceremonially. It means something different. It means something more like appropriate and inappropriate. The best way to think about that is you know we have our own customs as a culture, and other cultures have their own customs when it comes to lots of things. You know I have friends... I have a friend who grew up in the Middle East, and his custom when we go to his house is he wants us to take off our shoes, and it's a it's just a custom that's not wasn't the custom I grew up with, but it was a custom that's very appropriate to show respect to a home uh, for certain cultures. Another one is you think about different kinds of greetings. A French greeting is different than an American greeting. Or think about you know um, I remember we're going on a mission trip to Peru years ago, and this host family being so excited to serve me anticuchos, which was basically Cow heart, And I had to convince myself, I don't want to eat this, but also I love barbecue and I love hash. And if you know what hash is, like no one wants to eat hash once you know what it is. So I can do this and I powered through and it was actually pretty delicious. It's a Peruvian custom, but it's not our custom. So part of what I want to get the, the clean and unclean categories where God was giving his people a code and a custom, but it's not necessarily, in the, it's not the category of righteousness and wickedness. It's the, it's the category of appropriateness and inappropriateness to show that his people are set apart. Well, what were they? This is why we didn't read the whole passage. We can break it down. Basically, here's what the rules were. We can break it down into three different categories. The animals were divided into land animals, water animals, and air animals. When it came to the land animals, God said this. Whatever parts the hoof is cloven-footed and chews the cud. In other words, feeds on the land, feeds vegetally on grass is totally fair game. And here's what's prohibited. Camels, rock badgers. Pigs, do not touch or eat these. We're going to get into the explanation of the motivation a little bit. So that was the land. Then he goes to the water. Uh, Here's what God said in verses 9 through 12. If you got it up in front of you, everything in the waters that has fins and scales was fair game. Uh, And if it didn't, don't eat it, don't touch it. This is where we get sorry, no lobster for God's people back then, which is a bummer. Um, Third, animals of the air. This included uh, both birds, and namely what was prohibited were uh, birds that were largely carnivorous. We're going to talk about that in a a minute. And then insects. And what was out there were locusts and crickets and grasshoppers. And what was prohibited were all winged insects that go in all fours, looking at you, wasps and and the like. Which, I mean, we watched Planet Earth 2 last night and saw this wasp. First of all, I've never watched Planet Earth, and it is amazing. I am so sold. But we watched this wasp, these wasps devour these little baby frog eggs, little baby frog tadpoles, and it made me pray for the wrath of God against wasps. Um, so the explanation, that, so land, uh, water, and air, those were the, what the rules were. Okay, Why? Let's, we want to hurry to get to the why right because when we look at that this is why people think what in the world is god doing why in the world would god give such weird seemingly weird rules about food what his people could eat and not eat and let's spend a little bit of time just trying to unpack as best we can and the way i want to do it is talk about here's here are a lot of bad answers that people have given and here i think are some better answers that's all i've got for you tonight So first, let's just talk about some of the bad answers that people have given. Here's the first bad answer. One of the first bad answers is that it was arbitrary, that it was just God sort of picking and choosing randomly what his people could have. But the problem with that was God so clearly connects it in verse 44 and 45 that the way his people followed these rules was totally connected to being holy as God was holy. So it can't be random. You have to understand about God, he doesn't just randomly do things. Even if you don't understand why he does something, it doesn't mean it was random or arbitrary. He's always got reasons. He doesn't always have to give you those reasons, but it's never just arbitrary. So we've got to throw that one out of the window. Here's a second bad answer that people have given looking at the food laws, and it's that it was cultic. Some people look at it and say, oh, maybe the thing that's happening is these were animals that were typically parts of pagan worship services, And God wanted his people to not be involved with that and instead to focus on these animals to eat. Well, the problem with this is pagans worshipped bulls, sheep, and goats, which were all fair game for God's people. And sometimes they even worshipped these animals. So it can't be that it was a cultic difference, God trying to set apart the kind of worship he wanted his people to be a part of. The third answer that a lot of people give that's pretty common is that it was hygienic. That Basically, the, the, the thought goes here that unclean animals, these unclean animals are carriers of disease. But the problem with that is the text never makes that link at all. And also, these clean, clean animals in, in this passage are also carriers of disease. So it can't be that it's a hygiene thing. And, and the third thing we can say is he would have included these dangerous plants as well if it was totally about hygiene and his people's safety. So we've got to throw the hygiene answer out of the window, and then the fourth one that people often give a bad answer is that it was symbolic that clean animals somehow represented god 's people and unclean animals somehow represented um, not god's people the, the wicked um, cities and people on the earth at the time and the problem again with this is this, the text never says anything like that it 's super super speculative um, so we got to throw out all of those answers. Well, what in the world do we do with it then What are some better answers we'll hear a few better answers, and this is a total nod to my guy, Les Newsome, for helping me here. Here's three things you've got to understand about what God's doing. you got to follow me because they are, at first, not obvious, so follow me as best you can. Here's the first one. Part of the distinction had everything to do with death. If you were to look at the passage, lots of the unclean animals were carnivorous and lived off of flesh and blood. And the clean animals were grass-fed, peaceful, in tune more with life, not with the taking of life. And part of what God is saying in that distinction is that life is sacred and death is the enemy. This is one of the most Christian ideas in the world is that death is not natural. It's not natural to the way God created the world. It's, It's part of the fall. That death is the enemy that Christ ultimately came to undo, and part of the distinction between clean and unclean were clean were animals that had nothing to do with death, and unclean were animals that had something if not primarily ate off of feasted off of death so that 's the first thing it 's saying something about death that god 's people were supposed to be on team life and and care for life and things that were about life, not death here 's the second one that 's saying something really important about, and this one is really. It's a little bit complicated, but it makes a lot of sense once you get it. He's saying something, the distinction that he's saying something profound also, not just about death, but about holiness. Holiness, this is a word for us that can be really complicated because for some of us we grew up in the church and it got messed up through legalistic, fundamentalist ways. But Mary Douglas, in this book called Purity and Danger, she says this that's really fascinating when she's looking at the dif- difference between the clean animals and the unclean animals. Here's what she says: She said, individuals shall conform to the class to which they belong. Here's, in other words... There's a theme in Leviticus you've got to get, and it's this. It's the principle of being just one thing. Like we're going to talk uh, next week, I think, about the crops, like not having crops that are different next to each other. or having fabrics that are ro- woven that are different than each other. It's not that these things are inherently sinful. That's not at all what God's saying. But he's trying to give us picture. Remember, Leviticus is a visual aid of what it looks like to be in a relationship with God. God is saying this passage, I am holy. And what holiness is, in the words of Kierkegaard, is purity of heart to will one thing. And we could say purity of heart to be one thing. That part of what God was doing is he was visually showing in what they ate, Animals that were one thing and of a certain class. They were not anomalies that didn't transcend in weird differences their class, but were wholeheartedly this one thing. And so it's a visual image of what God's people, as they ate, were reminded of what they should be, to be what they already were, which is a huge, all of scripture when we talk about change and living into your Christian life is being what God has already made you to be, to be one thing, um, to have that kind of integrity. So the food laws were showing something about that. And then the third thing I think that's easier for us to get is they were saying something about creation and God's care and concern for the animals. Uh, Part of what the food laws were doing, they were teaching us about, teaching God's people about his intention for creation. Here's the way that um, a commentator says that I love. He says this, the purity codes cannot mean that God wants to rid his world of some animals that he considers to be second rate to others. There is nothing wrong with them or inherently disgusting about them. Listen to this. Rather, the reverse is true. By declaring them unclean and prohibiting the touching or use of their carcasses, God is building a hedge of protection around them and ensuring an environment in which it was possible for them to thrive and to multiply. In other words, part of what God was doing in this distinction was caring for his creation. And it makes sense if you think about it. You have to think it's different in our day and age. We live in a different time and a different place with different means to certain animals. And we love, we're love. we going to talk in a minute about in the freedom of Christ in undoing these food laws. But in the time, God was saying, I want you to eat these animals that are readily available and, and are kind of given to you. And I don't want you to touch these animals that I'm protecting that are not readily available, that need space to thrive and to multiply. It was a hedge of protection. Um, and part of what God was saying was, I care about them. And I want you to be good stewards in the way that you do food. We're going to talk about this more specifically when it comes to us. And let's move into that. So what in the world does this have to do with us? So the explanation of them, the motivation of them, this is behind what God was doing. But let's just talk for a little bit about the application of these laws for us. And let's just do big picture application. That's pretty easy. And small picture application, that's a little bit harder and a little bit more touchy and a little bit more stepping on toes. So number one, let's just do kind of big picture application. What does this have to do With us, And the first thing we've got to say is, if you know the Bible at all, if if you have read the Gospels at all, if you've read the book of Acts at all, you know that these food laws were fulfilled in Christ. Uh, We could go to Mark 7, where Jesus declares all foods clean, and he has that part where he says, it's not what you put into your bodies that defiles you, it's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. Part of what Jesus is saying, you guys have missed the point of these things. These food laws were never meant to be your righteousness before God. They were meant to be a visual aid for you of what it means to belong to God. But they didn't gain you an acceptance with God. And this is where we get into Acts 10. This is where Peter really struggles with this. You know, we talked a lot about Peter, uh, the life of Peter, all before spring break. and Acts chapter 10, that's the big place. That's the big moment where God gives Peter that huge vision. And basically declares these animals that have been for all of Peter's life unclean, he suddenly says, these are now clean. And it's it's connected with going to a Gentile Cornelius' house and preaching the gospel and seeing a mini Pentecost in his house, which we looked at. But Peter really struggled with this idea. God was saying, Jesus had said it, and then God showed Peter, stubborn Peter, specifically, these food laws are now fulfilled in Jesus. And now the span of your diet looks like the span of my kingdom. I declare these things that were once unclean, clean, just as I'm bringing Gentiles and pagans into my kingdom. And it was huge for Peter. And yet he struggled with it. Peter struggled with this idea that God had already, that the food laws were not a way of becoming clean before God, but the food laws were a visual aid and picture of God's already making his people clean and what it looks like to live in relationship with him. But Peter struggles with this, both with Cornelius He struggles with it in Galatians, where Paul rebukes him for not eating with Gentiles and not eating what they're eating. Peter really struggles with this idea, and so do we. We always want to reverse the order of the Christian life. The Christian life is always, you are clean. Through my work on your behalf, Jesus says. Through my work, through my life, and death on the cross, and resurrection, you are clean. Your sins are wiped away. Your shame is taken away. You are clean. Now go and live in this cleanness. But we always want to reverse that order and do the things that we think will make us clean, that keep us clean, and we reverse the order of our salvation, and we get miserable or we get proud. We always are doing that. Our hearts are prone to that. That's why the order of verse 45 is so important. Here's what God says. He does this always specifically when it comes to the law. He does it at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. He comes to his people and he says, I have redeemed you. I have taken you out of slavery in Egypt. You are mine. I am yours. We are in eternal covenant relationship. You can never lose my love for you. Now go live. Go live in my character. Go live in my ways. Go live in my commands. Go live in this freedom. That's always the order, and yet our hearts always want to reverse the order. So the first thing we've got to get is these food laws were meant to point us to our uncleanness, Which points us then to the one who can make us clean, which is Jesus, we know, himself. So that's the big picture application. But now let's do a little bit of small picture application. Because part of what this passage means is that our relationship with food says something about our relationship with Jesus. It says something about Jesus' creator, that he cares for his creation. So it means that the way we participate in, in the food industry is important. The way we do stewardship is important. It means that Jesus is the bread of life. And we can't look to food to satisfy us in the ways that Jesus alone can. Um, I love the way that Lauren Winter says it. She says, this God who is interested in how we speak, how we handle our money, how we carry our bodies, he is also interested in how we live with food. Um, I, was, I mentioned being at Good Life yesterday. and One of my friends was telling a story of um, these, uh, a Christian friend who lived not in America, I can't remember where, but when he would come to America and he would go to uh, worship with a a family here in America, and he said, especially in the South, he noticed something really strange. He said, you know, he would go to worship with this family and then they would go to some buffet afterwards. And he said that people would just load up their plates on this buffet and then sit down with this gluttonous amount of food and then say, let's thank God for this food. (laughs) And the guy said, I think it would have been better if they had prayed before they got into the line, Lord, give me self-control with this food, than to bring this gluttonous amount of food to the table and say, God bless these these things that are going to destroy my body. And he made a good point, right? That sometimes our relationship with food in this way, whether we overeat or undereat, can be extremely complicated. If you're like me, I think bread is the bread of life. Not Jesus. Like, I love bread. Like, when I try to do the Whole30... I can make it like a day and a half and just a crumble because bread means so much to me. Um, and no one got this, but I love Anne Lamott's got a story I'm going to read for her. She shares it in her book, Grace, Eventually. She's getting to this idea. She talks about giving up. She's an addict, and she's trying to kick her habits. And here she shares the story. She says this, um, all I could think to do, she's talking about going to this grocery store craving apple fritters. She says, all I could think to do was what every addict thinks of doing, kill the pain. I don't smoke or drink anymore, I'm too worried to gamble, too guilty to shoplift, and I've always hated clothes shopping. So what choices did that leave? I could go on a strict diet, or conversely, I could stuff myself to the, to the raptors with fats, sugars, and carcinogens. Ding, ding, we have a winner. I got in the car and headed to Safeway for an apple fritter, a perfect fritter in the classic tradition, a frisbee-sized patty of deep-fried dough, Oh, preach. Crisp and crunchy around the edges Doughy in the center Covered with a sugar glaze I used to eat fritters in mass quantities Back when I binged and purged Then in early sobriety I'd snack on them sometimes Because your body craves a replacement For all the sugar you uh, once got in alcohol And by the time the night was over I was so lost I couldn't follow the breadcrumbs Back to the path of mental health Because I'd eaten them all So I ended up eating junk Off and on until bedtime I can hardly describe how I felt When it was over Like a manatee alone in an aquarium. (laughs) It is hard to remember that you are a cherished spiritual being when you're burping up apple fritters and Cheetos. Sometimes I think that Jesus Jesus watches my neurotic struggles and shakes his head and grips his forehead and starts tossing back mojitos. Part of what she's saying is personally, the way that we relate to food says something about the way that we relate to Jesus. But then there's a bigger picture. There's a cultural picture of this too. Uh, I have a friend who has gotten really... It's really interesting. He's gotten really into organic farming. Like, legit into it. Not like I have a garden in my backyard. But, like, not just has chickens, but has started raising cattle. He sells... I mean, he's got, like... He's, like, building this farm where he sells stuff now. So, he sells not just eggs, but he sells chickens. He sells... You can buy, like, a cow. and You split it with a friend. You have meat for a year, which is pretty cool. Um, You can buy milk. You can buy all kinds of things. And he, he has this whole... He's gotten into this Christian farmer. I don't even know. I hate Christian as adjective. But a farmer who cares about creation. And he's kind of following this model. And part of what I want to say to you is, is he's following Jesus. This does not mean you need to go be an organic farmer. Maybe you do. I don't know. It doesn't even mean you need to go plant a garden. I mean, sure. that would, could, could You should think about it. Read, read some Wendell Berry. Because Wendell Berry gets into this. He's got an article... Um, in his 1989 book, where he talks about his, the article is called "The Pleasures of Eating," and here's his big. I send your hand out. Here's his big um, epiphany. He says, like in industrial sex, industrial eating has become a degraded, poor, and paltry thing. Our kitchens and other places more and more resemble filling stations, as our homes more and more resemble motels. Life is not very interesting. We seem to have decided. Let its satisfactions be minimal, perfunctory, and fast. We hurry through our meals to go to work and hurry through our work in order to, rec- to recreate ourselves in the evenings and on weekends and vacations. And then we hurry with the greatest possible speed and noises and noise and violence through our recreation for what? To eat the billionth hamburger at some fast food joint hell-bent and increasing the quality of our life. And all this is carried out in remarkable obliviousness to the causes and effects the possibilities and the purposes of the life of the body in this world. And part of what he's trying to get at is that our relationship with food, not just personally, but even culturally and environmentally, matters. That Jesus cares about it, and he's showing this through Leviticus. Um, this is why Jesus. We, when we looked at the passage where he hosts, you know, he's the care, he's the creator and the caretaker of the the hippopotamus and the hummingbird. He, he is the Uh, host on the beach, the risen Jesus, my favorite passage in the Bible, We looked at it where he brings his disciples, John 21, and he's, he's doing a fish fry on the beach with them. He enjoys food. And yet he says, I'm the bread of life. Food will never satisfy you. Food matters, but it will never satisfy you the way that I can. So the question for us tonight is what does your relationship with food say about your relationship with Jesus? I'll close with this. There's a, a poem that Barry uses in that article from William Carlos Williams. It goes like this. I'll close with it. He says, There is nothing to eat, seek it where you will, but the body of the Lord. The blessed plants in the sea yield it to the imagination intact. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you be at work in us? Um, would you sanctify us, make us more in your image? Would you um, wrestle with us in these questions tonight? We pray these things, Lord Christ, There's in the your name. There's I Back. can hear sometimes Out here on the mountain When it's dark and the sky is pouring acid like fountain And the memories like cold Dust in the window of my house So ask them no questions They can't sell you No more lies I hear voices all around me in society's depression Over and over they recite their first impressions